Dr. Rav Alexandra Eliora Peretz recently received an Orthodox Micha Yora Yorev from Rav, Professor Rav Daniel Sperber, Israel, who won the Israel Prize for Jewish Studies, and Rav Herzl Hefter after three years of intensive studies at Beit Midrash RL. This year, Eliora has been awarded an Advanced Torah Fellow Scholarship at the Memorial Foundation of Jewish Culture in New York to research the mikvah ritual of the Converting Bride. For the last decade, she's been teaching Talmud, Halakha, and Musar to Francophone Jews in various settings. Elior completed her PhD in Media Sciences at the Sorbonne University in, in Paris. She's an associate lecturer at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and part of a research think tank at the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute on Partnership Peace. She's a research consultant for the UN Global Coalition on Youth, Peace, and Security, UNSCR 2050. Her research on the role of media during transitional justice processes and peace negotiations has been published on various top-ranked peer-reviewed academic journals and collective academic publications. It's very rare that we have a scholar here who is both immersed in Torah and immersed in this thoughtful academic work and as a practitioner on in peace work. So we're very pleased to have here at Earth Tzedek in partnership with Torah Chaim, um, our friend um, Rabbi Dr. Eliora uh, parents. Thank you for joining us to talk about transitional justice. Thank you so much for having me. I, I think, you know, it's an honor to teach like transitional justice to um, to an audience that is sensitive to a um, very deep aspect of what it means to study. Basically, transitional justice is like standing, studying how we uh, basically repair the world that we destroyed together. So there's a lot of like Torah in there, but I'll stick, you know, I'll put my academic hat for tonight and I'll just dig into, uh, you know, academic input that I want to share with you basically. So um, I'm going to share my PowerPoint with you now. Um, okay. Lovely. That should work. It's okay. You can see. Good. Amazing. So I just wanted to kind of dig into what is transitional justice, okay? Because when we think about SEDEC, justice is something that is punctual that happens during a trial. And it's very, it can be very surprising to have an adjective of transition that is added to it. Um, if we're dealing with transitional justice, what are we transitioning into? And basically there are two main, there are two main researchers that um, tackled that aspect. So there is on the one hand, Big Ford, and on the other hand, a Uti title. And Big Ford is basically explaining that transitional justice is a field of activity, of inquiry, focused on how societies address legacies of past human rights abuse, mass atrocity, genocide, and civil war. And the purpose is to build basically a democratic, just, and peaceful future together. Ruti title is mostly focusing on the law aspect and she's basically defining transitional justice as a justice that is associated with periods of political change. It's characterized by legal responses and it's meant to confront the wrongdoings of repressive predecessor regimes. And basically my research angle is not from the law because I have my PhD in, uh, in media science. And in my doctorate and in my postdoc uh, researcher and publication, I tried to really understand how Switzerland as a neutral country was transitioning with the memory of being 
a neutral country, right, during World War II, um, toward taking responsibility in the looting of the assets of, um, of Jewish victims of the Holocaust. Um, and basically how this transition toward acknowledgement of the role in, in history led to a, a sense of changing self-perception. And by changing self-perception, it needed also to heal itself uh, from this very traumatic moment, right? Like from uh, realizing that actually uh, we were not that neutral and we committed crime and we need to apologize for it and we need to make up for it. So what is transitional justice per se? First of all, um, it is a justice that is conducted in different steps. And it's basically accompanying political transformation to confront the wrongdoings of a putative predecessor regime. The general purpose is basically to investigate human rights and violation, um, sorry, past human rights violation and to prosecute the criminal. Crucial for the victim to see their perpetrator adopting in the media arena, the narrative negotiated during transitional justice. Basically, we're trying here to change, to shift a narrative about you know, who were the perpetrator. And by doing this, we're creating the category of who are actually the victims. Since the effectiveness of transitional justice may be judged on the basic of the circulation of the newly updated mutual agreed upon historical narrative, I basically digged into tracking like if and how countries which transited are updating their history books that they will use in schools and maybe you know setting commemoration um, ceremonies um, or trying to delve into art and cultural production that will acknowledge the suffering of the victim. So here I put some kind of a visual illustration of what I presented up until now, like transitional justice is articulating a change in narrative, a transition in a narrative. And the role of the media is very crucial in this aspect because how do we know about the past? Um, some of us are, you know, love to read history books, but most of us we will hear it from school, whatever we are taught. So the role of the, the educator is crucial here, but also from what the media tell us about what happened in the past during commemoration time and so on and so forth. So now I want to take some uh, about five minutes to um, explain you the legal content um, of this structure. First of all, we have to understand uh, uh, the basic of, of, of this idea of transitional justice is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There is this preamble of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was written in 1948, just after the Shoah. And human rights are the basic rights and freedoms to which all humans are entitled. So, you know, we're trying to define two categories. The first one are the civil and political rights. So life, to be alive basically, right? Liberty of property and property, freedom of expression, pursuit of happiness and equality before the law. This is how it's phrased. And the second aspect are the social, cultural and economical rights. It's basically the right to participate in science and nature, the right to work, the right to education. So whenever we are dealing with abuse of human rights, it's basically something, a violence uh, or an oppression that will challenge either of these two um, elements here. Financial justice is not dealing with regular violation of human rights, it's dealing with violation of human rights in a framework of mass atrocities. 
and it's basically genocide, war crime, crime against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. So I think we need to take a few minutes to define each of these uh, keywords that we hear, you know, unfortunately, uh, quite often. Genocide. So the genocide has been defined as, mean, as meaning act uh, committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. The critical aspect about the genocide is that there must be a proven intent on the part of the perpetrator to physically destroy a national, ethnic, racial and religious group or religious group. The victim of this crime are deliberately and not randomly targeted because of their real or perceived membership in one of the four protected groups. Genocide can also be committed against only a part of the group as long as this part is identifiable. If I, if I rephrase in one sentence, genocide is a crime that is perpetrated into, in order to completely annihilate a peculiar a, a part of humanity and to do it so intentionally. Crime against humanity have not been codified um, in a separate treaty of international law. So it's defined in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court as follows. The crime against humanity means act committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack during, uh, directed against any civilian population. So the key aspect of crime against humanity is that suddenly the category of the victim is not anymore a particular type or group, is, is defined by the fact that we are targeting civilians. So this crime can be murder or extermination, deportation or forcible transfer of population, torture, rape, sexual slavery, enforced prostitution, forced pregnancy, enforced sterilization, or any other form of sexual violence of comparable gravity. The crime of apartheid has also been codified as a crime against humanity. And other inhumane acts of a similar character intentionally cause great, intentionally causing great suffering or serious injury to body or to mental or to physical health. So, this definition is extremely helpful in our international um, uh, relation. And on the other hand, it's pretty broad. So it gives room for interpretation. Um, the ethnic cleansing, for example, um, that has been labeled as such in, uh, in, uh, in Australia, for example, and it's started to be discussed in, in, in Canada as well. Um, it hasn't been recognized as an independent crime under international law, um, but it's basically uh, rendering an area ethnically homogeneous by using force or intimidation to remove persons of a given group from an area. It's a purposeful policy designed by one ethnic or religious group to remove by violent and terror-inspiring means the civilian population of another ethnic or religious group from certain geographic area. So the important variable when we think about ethnic cleansing is space, the geography. And it's basically the key aspect of what makes an ethnic cleansing is that I'm trying to displace people to you know, create an empty space from that part of, from that people that I don't want in, in that part uh, geographically. 
now war crime, this is the last one uh, that is addressed in transitional justice. Um, war crime takes place in a context of an armed conflict. That's the, the particularity of it, either international or non-international. So in international conflict, uh, war crime are willful killing, torture or inhuman treatment or causing great suffering, serious injury to body or health against a sick wounded prisoner of war or other detainees, civilians and civilian object. So the fascinating part of this definition is that both the prisoner of war and civilians would be on the same status as victim of war crimes. In non-international armed conflict, Violence to life and person, in particular murder of all kinds, mutilation, cruel treatment, and torture of person taking no active part in the hostilities. Intentionally directing attack against the civilian population as such, or against individual civilians not taking direct part in hostilities. So if I sum up, by contrast to genocide and crimes against humanity, War crimes can be committed against a diversity of victims, either combatant or non-combatant, depending upon the type of crime. So now that we made all this definition um, clear, uh, I want to focus on uh, the Holocaust, uh, which I will from now on refer to as the Shoah uh, in transitional justice. So Second World War was basically the anchor uh, event that made international um, forces understand that we need to codify what is okay to do and what is not okay to do. And we need to codify which crimes are going to be persecuted um, after an end of a conflict. Um, and the Shoah was basically an anchor of trying to articulate that system. So John Torpe is saying that the Shoah is basically a standard and a model of transitional justice. Um, it has been also qualified, of course, by the trial. Maybe you remember about the Nuremberg trial. There was also the Eichmann trial, and there were many trials also in a, uh, by the Allies. Um, after the trial, um, there was some reparation payments that were um, organized between the state of Israel and West Germany. And it looks like, you know, paying the the victim compensation is part of this transitional aspect of the justice. But there's also um, apology, like public apology, um, where um, we would wait for some kind of a political representative of a country that was part of the persecutor to acknowledge the wrongs that were done by apologizing for it. Some, somehow it looks like money paying and the trial might not be enough to kind of allow toward a transition. The main purpose of transition is to move either toward a democracy or, and usually also as well, as a reconciliation so that we can live together after um, the end of the conflict. What Rudi Teitel is saying is that, um, <clears throat> sorry, basically transition is so strong that it has become some kind of a persistent trope and a part of our shared reality um, that is constructed via the media coverage. Which means that if you look at the news, the coverage of the news, of course you will have new element, but some part of the news will be engaging with how we make things right from the past as well.
So the Encyclopedia of Genocide and Crime Against Humanity is defining exactly what is transitional justice. I'll show you in a moment some kind of a visual representation of it. Um, but it's basically saying it's the justice during transition. So it's this justice that is done right after the end of a conflict, right before I build my new state or my new entity. And in order for me to move from the death force to destruction force to the life force about building life and making sure that I construct a system where human rights abuse will not be possible anymore, I need this like empty space somehow that is the in-between. And this is what transitional justice is especially uh, trying to assess. So in transitional justice period, we are confronting the past. We are looking at the past in the face and we're trying to address the wrongs that were done. It's self-consciously victim-centric. So the purpose of transitional justice is to put the victim at the first front and um, trying to address you know, um, everything that has to do with them so that they too can feel um, that they can rebuild trust with the power that represent them as citizens and that they can be part of this new society that is being constructed. So I listed here the years where transitional justice has been effective in different, um, in different conflicts. So we have Nuremberg, Greece, Argentina, uh, Chile, Guatemala, South Africa was the, the end of the apartheid, Poland, Sierra Leone, East Timor, and Rwanda was the Rwandan genocide. Basically, what transitional justice is focusing on is also, of course, the role of the victim in their testimonial and their willingness to be part of this you know, system that we're building, but also the role of democratic activists. Democratic activists are gonna be people that are fully aware of the fact that this violation of human rights is absolutely problematic and it needs to be kind of healed before we can transit into a long lasting relationship with this new reality. Because we can invent laws that will define, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give you some example about uh, South Africa and the apartheid where a new constitution was written, but to create the feeling that it's okay for me to be with what I perceived before another race that I don't want to be involved with, to transit into this mindset of it is this person is completely my equal and is my partner in this new regime, takes time and takes a lot of work actually. So to sum up all of what I said until now, um, this is the, the basically the visual I came up with based on uh, John Torpe. Um, so here at the first step, transitional justice can be criminal trials, political purge, uh, and or truce commission. So I didn't elaborate in details about the truce commission. I think I will afterwards. But truce commission is a is a phenomenal healing process where actually perpetrators are somehow uh, invited, i.e., obliged to hear the testimonial of a victim, to grasp and understand the the deepness of the crime that they perpetrated, and to feel sorry for it, to repent from it, and also legally. In some cases, um, they need to listen to the testimonial and react to, to them uh, by acknowledging their wrongs in front of their own victim, if it's possible. Um, and the main purpose of that is to see whether or not um, these perpetrators can kind of do tshuva, you know, they can change their awareness. And if they can, then they're granted amnesty 
and they become equal citizens to this new uh, to this new democratic state. So of course, there's you know good good aspect about it and a critical aspect about it as well. The reparation payments, um, sorry, is a second step. And that's basically dealing with everything that has to do um, with restitution of material kind. So in case of, um, of, uh, of war, um, maybe you can ask to have your home back, for example, or you can ask for compensation for everything that was stolen from your properties. But it can also be in a case of Israel and, and uh, West Germany, reparation payment that are monthly allowance that you will get until the rest of your life for compensating um, you know, the years you lost by not getting an education and, and you will basically never have the job you could have had if you had this education. Or you know, all the care that you have to pay every month and uh, um, that has such a huge cost in, in, in your life and so on and so forth. So these are the reparation. There is also there are also of course critical voices about it, in terms that you know, <laughs> what is the price, right? Like, how can I evaluate? I mean, think of uh, Baba Kama that you evaluate the slave on the slave market, but like, sorry for the you know you know what I mean about the the essence of the discussion here is like how can I put a price on this tremendous trauma of being a survivor of major human rights violation is there such a thing is it is there such an amount of money so of course the amount of money is symbolic some victims don't want to to have this money and some victims uh, welcome this money as you know a, a way to move on and 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 get the life back basically after reparation payment, according to uh, to this model, you would have genuine, heartfelt, honest apologies. Okay, so there's a lot of literature about what these apologies should look like, um, and the different types. Like if you think of a uh, um, uh, Willy Brandt who kneeled in the ghetto of Warsaw, he kneeled as a, a Christian, you know, um, a gesture of prayer and he didn't say a word, but somehow his gesture that was very genuine and, and, and he didn't plan for it um, kind of did the trick. Like it, it really worked and, and it got into the heart of some survivors. Um, then there is more contemporary um, apologies um, about, for example, uh, when we think about the apartheid, but also like in, in Canada for um, ethnic cleansing in Australia as well. It's actually this week, um, things are really moving um, in the process with Australia. Um, and uh, most of the times, um, survivors of major human rights violation are welcoming this apology because it's a very empathic, a very humane part of the transitional justice where I basically validate and acknowledge what you're feeling. I see you, I hear you, and I'm deeply sorry for it. Um, and usually it's accompanied with a lot of emotion and crying and everything. But I feel that what is at stake here is this capacity to look at your perpetrator that is acknowledging that is capable of having this shift into his perception of the reality and the perception of you. Um, and that brings some healing that no money can bring and that no trial can bring. It's like bringing another layer of, of, uh, of healing. Communicative history is a, is a fascinating part of the transitional justice and it's most of the time the latest um, layer, sorry. <coughs> Um, it includes um, memorials, 
like building a museum in the memory of the of the of the victim. Um, and um, it can also uh, include a commemoration, like official commemoration or alternative commemoration of the victim. It's also building somehow a historical consciousness in the in the calendar of this newly created um, democratic power. Um, and it can also be noticed into changing, updating history books. There's something absolutely tremendously important for victims saying, okay, we're having this trial that are most of the time very you know, broadcasted and highly political. Um, you paid me money for whatever harm you did to my body and my soul. Um, you apologize for your crime, but now let's see, the real test is what you're gonna teach your children about it. Are you going to update the narrative? Are you going to acknowledge your role? Are you going to teach that it's not okay, that it should not be um, replicated? And are you going to basically see my narrative as a victim as a valid narrative that needs to be passed on into the next generation as well? Okay, now I want to um, look into um, the framework of how to confront uh, past abuse. It has been argued that transitional justice is uh, some kind of a political um, a system that has been created by uh, people in charge of power, like um, you know, um, political leaders, in order for them to strike a major political transformation in the shortest amount of time possible. So in some countries, um, the work of the transitional justice is in a very defined uh, timeline. And other countries, for example, each step will be achieved with a time gap that cannot really be planned ahead or, uh, or just planned at all. Um, and that can be extremely frustrating for the victim because, for example, um, uh, here, if I take the case of Switzerland, um, there was a truce commission, there were two truce commission, there were reparation payment, there was an apology that was not amazing, but it was there. But the updating of the history book is still awaited like 15 years after the fact, and it probably will not happen if there isn't an extra push uh, for it. But there are some like exhibition in different museums that are addressing um, different aspects of the transitional justice. Uh, so that can be extremely um, frustrating. Um, to the point that if the whole process is not completed within a time frame that you know is less than a generation, then retroactively, and that's what I argue in my uh, the publication of 2013, retroactively uh, we kind of question the whole process. Like, were you really honest when you were carrying out your truth commission? Were you really genuine when you apologize? Because it takes so long for you to update your history books. Therefore, I should maybe doubt of your honesty during the, the process. So that can be extremely catastrophic because it's basically destroying all the work that has, uh, that has been done um, because of a lack of um, the completion of the, of the next uh, step. So in order for us to confront past abuse, Big Ford is telling us that you need a combination of complementary judicial and non-judicial strategies. 
So as I said, prosecuting the perpetrators, establishing truce commission, forging effort toward reconciliation in fractured societies. So this is not present in transitional justice per se. It's added to the literature by saying, um, what, is the, what is the value of transitional justice if we're not working toward reconciliation? And sometimes it's too far-fetched. Um, if you think about you know, the Shoah and, 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 and Germany, uh, some of us are okay with accepting uh, reparation. Some of us are okay with accepting the apology, but maybe we will have a problem to reconciliate. You know, uh, uh, there is a pattern of like boycotting products, you know, uh, as a stance, right? So if you ask for reconciliation as somehow a needed step into evaluating uh, the effectivity of transitional justice for most of the crimes, uh, that qualified as genocide, um, and um, uh, uh, the system will fall short. You will never really reach reconciliation uh, as fast as one uh, would wish. The most successful um, system maybe is uh, the somehow the apartheid, but on the other hand, like contemporary um, research are showing that you know on paper it looks perfect. We did everything right, but like concretely, we still feel something is off sometime for education, for access to uh, work, for like inequalities and so on and so forth. Um, um, the key to making sure that you are reaching a long lasting transformation is basically to reform a wide spectrum of abusive state institution. So this is the very tricky moment where, uh, especially for example, um, if you think about the example of Ireland, Northern Ireland, it's like um, if you're dealing with violent uh, type of, uh, of, uh, of crime, um, it's very hard to transit from one day like this, okay, I'll stop whatever I was doing for 30, 40 years and I'm going to be someone else completely out of the blue. So in order for it to work, you need to completely change the whole political system that you build afterwards so that no one can be covered um, by this new political system. And I can give you many examples like this of like, um, you know, for example, is people who were in a, in a Stasi, like in, a, in, a, in Germany, and then they would suddenly run for being, you know, mayor or like minister or whatever. Um, and that for the victim is problematic because it's like, wait a minute, but like, isn't it so that you qualify as a criminal and we've been through the process and now you're the leader and you're carrying on your public life as if nothing happened. So it's problematic for me somehow. So we try to assess in transitional justice how much a previous perpetrator can take an active part on a political level in rebuilding society afterwards. That's something we're trying to um, assess. Um, also, in order for uh, the confrontation of past abuse to be effective, you need developing reconciliation initiatives. And that could be by peaceful existence, by collective healing, by, you know, bringing closure, um, and we yet have to invent and be creative about what that could be in terms of dealing with uh, post-trauma and, uh, you know, being able to encounter the story from the other side and being able to hold it and not judge it and not, you know, criticize it and just 
hold it for what it is as a story of a, of a, of a victim. So I have 10 minutes left. Maybe I give you some uh, example. Um, so I have an example of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the apartheid. That was the flyer. Um, so here it says, if your mother was tortured, um, murdered or abducted and your father and children would be silenced. So it's trying to invite you to speak. Let's speak out to each other by telling the truth, by telling our stories of the past so that we can walk the road of reconciliation together. So basically this um, truth commission that lasted about nine months and, and was um, um, headed by uh, Desmond Tutu. I have a picture here of him. Um, so he got the Nobel Prize uh, for his activities during this truth commission. Um, and he, we could talk about it forever, but like the figure of the religious leader, it's fascinating here. Um, you know, you, you can definitely see uh, the outside signs of a, of, a, of, a, of a religious figure. And here, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu is inviting you to tell the truth. And that's enacting into a framework of a Christian approach to forgiveness that if you confess your sin somehow, you can be absolved by, uh, in that case, Desmond Tutu, who is a representative of, um, you know, godly power into that truth commission. So what they're trying to do here is to appeal to the religious sensitivity of people saying, come and confess. We will write down what you say and you will be potentially absolved. On a political level, that's particularly what happened. It's like, if you come as a perpetrator to the Truth Commission, your testimonial is gonna be typed and recorded in the archive. And if you show some kind of um, sorrow or like remorse and, and you say, I regret for my crime, you basically get some kind of a political uh, absolution, okay? And you can basically run for any political um, um, office or job in the transited um, political entity after the, the apartheid. So the Truth and uh, Reconciliation Committee had three different committees. So it was he hearing of human rights violation from 1960 to 94, hearing of amnesty application. So this is uh, what, I'm what I was just referring to. Um, and reparation for victims and survivors of apartheid era uh, violence. So here they frame the reparation payment as restoring the victim dignity. So it looks like by receiving a certain amount of money, it was a gesture to bring back to these victims the dignity that was stolen from them. Um, yeah. Uh, so this, is, this was the codification of the different types of uh, of race under under the apartheid, and these are some picture. Uh, you know, some I have sometimes students that are really not familiar with it. So the segregation. What was the segregation on the everyday basic? So basically, transitional justice is building a framework where this can never happen again legally. It will be sanctioned. Okay, so we are building it, uh, some kind of a political entity where gross violation of human rights is not legal anymore. And we are transiting the mentality, the mindset, the moral, the understanding of who is my other uh, through this uh, truth commission and this uh, transition. Um, 
Right. So I wanted to also talk to you about the memorials. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, I have five more minutes. I'll, I'll respect my time. I just want to. Okay. So there is example of, of memorials that's extremely, extremely, extremely important, and it varies based on different culture. Okay. So I want to show you a few examples. So now, if you go to Yad Vashem, you have Yad Vashem. Okay, you have a memorial and a name, and if you can, you have also a picture. But basically, the name is what commemorates the, the victim. Uh, so in different culture, is different things, because most of the time, um, uh, the, 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 the weight of having a name is not so strong in different culture and different uh, religion. And the purpose of the memorial is, first of all, to um, show the reality of the genocide or the reality of the war crime in order for people to never say, to, to not be in denial. Um, so the memorial are changing the agreed upon narrative about the extension of the crimes and their nature. So these memorials play two roles. First of all, if you go to visit them, when you go out, if you have doubt about whether or not that was true, you had a proof that it was true. And second of all, we're trying to kind of create some kind of a feeling of empathy toward um, the victims uh, that maybe, you know, if you were on the side of the perpetrator, uh, it, it will not happen because again, if you were a perpetrator of a genocide, for you, the other doesn't have any importance on the human level. You don't trust that they're on the same level. You just want to exterminate them, right? So we need this memorial for if the perpetrator are visiting this memorial, they will get some kind of an encounter with what this crime was about. So I'm sorry, it's a bit graphic. Uh, so this is, for example, in uh, Cambodia, okay? And so this, there is this practice of aligning the skull and the bones, and it's also a, a practice in, in Rwanda in the memorial. Because it's like showing this is the truth. This is what we're talking about. These are the victims. We never want this again. Um, and you cannot deny anymore that it happened. Therefore, we need to transit into another system. We need to um, get rid of whatever uh, ideology or, or understanding of, of the reality that we had because it leads to that crime. In other, um, this is in a, in a Potokari. Uh, so these were like the, the Muslim victim uh, from the, so there's a debate whether or not we should call, it's not clear yet, right? Like a, of a genocidal ethnic cleansing. Uh, and here is very different because you have pictures of the people. It's also more contemporary somehow, but um, is putting faces without names. So it's like these victims are watching you somehow and telling you, don't forget us and don't reciprocate the horror um, and try to transit into another system and into another a, a society that will be democratic and not lead to these uh, awful uh, crimes. So with this, I stop and um, yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, what I have a question. How do you think, um, if anything, these um, uh, every, a lot of your presentation has adapted to this, uh, our current times right now? Do you think it stayed the same or has it adapted to what the current things that we're seeing? 
So to give you an example, the Uyghur genocide, um, I, I've seen that in, in a lot of our time, it's not being addressed as a genocide and it's not giving, it's mm -hmm. not been given a lot of mainstream attention. Um, is it because we're still stuck in the past and we're not willing to address it as a genocide? Or what do you, what do you think? About the Armenians? The Uyghur genocide in China. Uyghur, ah, ah, yes, yes, of course. Well, okay, so this is the frustrating part of studying human rights abuse is that you need a timeline and there is really a genuine question that is asked within the scholarship of transitional justice. Can we use the tool of transitional justice when we're, when we're facing ongoing conflict? So the Uyghur, for example, uh, what happens in Ukraine um, and other conflicts throughout the world, um, some researcher will say, listen, we need to finish, we need to close the, the crime basically before we start to have trials and, and commemorate victims and like we cannot do it whilst it's ongoing. And other research um, a trend, which I'm, I'm basically part of is like saying, well, you know, this can take on for a very, very long time. And it's not like we can ignore now with social media, we're aware of it. So we have to decide commonly when we can label it as a genocide, as an ethnic cleansing. And once we decided this as a, as a, as a, as a group, right, we can basically start to demand justice and move on into this map of transitional justice. I think the purpose of my presentation is was just to make you aware of these steps because sometimes we're stuck into steps and we don't understand the whole system. And I really like what John Torpe is telling us because he's saying, hey, look, there's a trial, like a war crime trial. This is the beginning of transitional justice. And the fact that it happened in an ongoing conflict, for example, now like with Ukraine, or the fact that state will wait 10, 15, 20 more years of human rights abuse before they even think about having a trial. And that's an issue that we, we, we as you know, human uh, can be activists, can advocate for you know, setting up a trial, like uh, gathering names of people, of, of civilians who have been murdered and uh, try to like build maybe an archive or data of like uh, social media that, that give testimonial to these crimes. Um, but this is definitely something that we need to decide as a community, like what we do with what we hear, what we see and what we know. Thank you so much. Last question here that we, uh, we got sent in is uh, in transitional justice, why is it so important to be accurate with language? Beautiful. Um, so because it has a legal bounding, you, you remember maybe the four definition that I made of the crime. So it really depends how you qualify the crime and the proportionality of the sentence is going with that. Uh, for example, the more um, qualification of you know, war crime is different than genocide, is different than ethnic cleansing. And therefore the debate is about the word. If you use the word, which is genocide, um, then you know, there's a whole legal aspect that is unfolding, that is not unfolding for, for war crime uh, that unfortunately are much more common on an everyday basis. So um, it's like, we want to strike very hard against genocide. This is something that we agreed upon after the, after the second world war. Um, and maybe it's unfortunate and maybe it shouldn't be that there is you know, different appreciation of crime is a crime and it shouldn't be that you know, um, we base ourselves on a definition, but there's definitely um, a, a fight for defining and, and getting the highest label, which is genocide, in order to attract attention and to move forward into the legal aspects. Thank you so much for this class.
has been an incredible journey to be able to learn with you and, and really try to understand that for transitional justice, there is definitely steps to take. It isn't just something that happens. We're looking at something that it takes a lot of steps to continue to, to push forward. Everybody have an amazing day. One more time, I want to say thank you so much uh, to the rabbi here who gave an amazing class. This will be available and recorded on earlyatzetic.org. Uh, you can be able to uh, revisit this class, send it to a friend, and listen on our podcast. Everybody have an amazing day. Thank you so much for joining us. Take care. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye.